1990, Terry Gents packs her life into boxes. She's 33 years old and embarking on a new adventure, a cross-country move from New York to Los Angeles. She sifts through her belongings, deciding what to bring and what to get rid of. Scattered throughout her apartment are piles of old clothing, long-forgotten books, and trinkets she doesn't remember buying. Then she sees it. The sleeping bag. The sleeping bag. As she unfolds the fabric, she takes a strange comfort in seeing that it hasn't changed much at all. Sure, it's older and smells a bit like mildew, but the blood stains are still there, just as dark as they were 13 years ago. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering the Klein Falls Axe Attack, In 1977, two Yale roommates began a bike trip across the United States, but their journey was cut short by a vicious assault straight out of a slasher film. Years later, one woman returned to investigate, only to discover an evil that had haunted the area for decades. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Think about the last time you watched a horror movie or rode a roller coaster or went to a haunted house. You probably weren't alone. We tend to do these things with others. Experiencing fear in a controlled environment is a way to bond. But what about when the danger is real? When the threat isn't on screen, but standing right in front of you? When two people face near certain death together, does it bring them closer or tear them apart? These questions are at the heart of today's story. We'll begin in 1977 in New Haven, Connecticut. 19-year-old Terry Gents and her roommate, who we'll call Anya Olson, are sitting in the cafeteria at Yale University. Terry and Anya are nearing the end of their sophomore year, but they've been friends since they were freshmen. They come from slightly different backgrounds. 
Terry grew up on the outskirts of Chicago in a middle-class family with no connection to academia. Anya's from a wealthy New England town, and both her parents are university professors. Despite their differences, Terry and Anya bonded over the fact that they take school very seriously. Now, they're inseparable and looking for a way to spend the summer together. While they're eating in the cafeteria, they overhear another student talking to a group of friends nearby. He's telling them how he and a group of friends biked all the way across the United States the previous year. Sounds like the opposite of a relaxing vacation, right? The route he took is called the Transamerica Bicycle Trail, and it opened in 1976 to commemorate the country's 200th birthday. It's a series of biking trails that stretch over 4,000 miles from Oregon to Virginia. People spend months making the trek, stopping at historical markers along the way. Terry later writes about the moment she learns about the trail in her book, Strange Piece of Paradise. To her and Anya, it sounds like the ultimate adventure. An athletic feat, an educational journey, and a way to get to know the American landscape more intimately than ever before. But when Terry asked permission from her parents, her mother's hesitant. Many of the trails are on the edge of busy roadways. There are vast stretches where Terry and Anya would be far from civilization. They could be stuck camping in the wilderness for days at a time. Plus, they'd be traveling alone. And as young women, that's something they've been taught all their lives not to do. But Terry is set on making this trip happen. She takes a job as a dishwasher at the school cafeteria to raise money for equipment. She gets a trail guidebook and studies it day and night, mapping out the route and planning stops. When the semester ends, Terry and Anya go home for a few weeks Terry packs and repacks supplies and tinkers with her brand new bike while counting down the days until the adventure begins. Finally, the day arrives. In early June, the women meet up in Chicago and board a Greyhound bound for Astoria, Oregon, the starting point of the Transamerica Trail. During the four-day drive, they meet a young couple who are also attempting the trek. Their names are Mark and Kathy. They're marathon runners in their mid-twenties, well-equipped for the physical challenge. Meeting them makes Terry and Anya realize just how big of an athletic feat they've signed up for. But it's also a stroke of luck. Anya's been nervous about traveling alone, and Mark and Kathy agree all four of them should ride together. On June 16th, the group takes off from Astoria pedaling along the Oregon coast. The sky is overcast and it drizzles constantly, but they're too excited to let the weather get them down. They spend the next two days biking almost constantly, covering upwards of 60 miles a day. They stop at campgrounds to sleep overnight. By day three, the exhilaration of embarking is starting to fade, and Anya's doubts come creeping back. They've barely covered 200 miles, and she's already exhausted. She tells Terry she doesn't know if she can make it to Virginia, but Terry can't even fathom slowing down. As they reach central Oregon, the landscape becomes mountainous. 
Terry and Anya struggle to bike uphill. They start to feel like they're holding their companions back. On Wednesday, June 22nd, day 7, Terry and Anya agree to tell Mark and Kathy it's okay if they split up. Mark and Kathy bike ahead 20 miles to the small town of Redmond, Oregon. Terry and Anya can't push their tired bodies that far. After 16 miles, they decide to stop at a state park called Klein Falls. The guidebook says there's a campground where they can spend the night. It's already dark when they arrive, and as they pedal up to the site, they see a sign that says day use only. Turns out it's not actually an overnight campground. But they're exhausted. Terry wants to stay. Anya wants to leave, but she's too tired to argue. She gives in and helps her friend pitch the tent. Around 10 p.m., Anya goes to bed. Terry stays up a little longer, listening to the sounds of the nearby creek and looking at the wide open sky. Close to 11 p.m., she unzips the tent, crawls into her sleeping bag, and shuts her eyes. Terry is fast asleep when suddenly she's woken by the sound of screeching tires and a white hot explosion of pain across her chest. Her body floods with adrenaline and the pain gives way to panic. She can't move. She hasn't just been hit by a car. Her upper body is pinned under the wheel of a pickup truck. The fabric of her tent has been torn away, but she's still wrapped inside her sleeping bag. Just when she starts to make sense of what's happening, she hears the truck's door open and shut. There's a moment of silence before Terry hears Anya's shrill, terrified voice screaming, Leave us alone! Terry is stuck. She can barely breathe. It's dark, and she's not wearing her contact lenses. Everything is a blur. Then she hears a series of sickening thuds. Seven blows, she thinks, one after another. Everything goes quiet. The truck's door opens and shuts again. The driver backs up. The tire rolls off Terry's chest. She takes in one massive gulp of air, and then something crashes into her head. Over and over, someone's hitting her with a weapon. She grabs for it and feels a metal blade. She's stuck on the ground, can't see, can't stop the blows that keep raining down on her skull. A single thought crystallizes in her mind. I'm going to die. The barrage stops as quickly as it began. Terry hears the truck back up again, moving further away from her. She's in shock, barely able to register the pain in her head, chest, and arms. She feels herself slipping away. Then, there's a man standing over her. She sees clean boots, pristine blue jeans, and a crisp button-up shirt that's been meticulously tucked in. She can't make out his face, but two things are clear. He's a well-dressed cowboy, and he's holding a bloodied axe in his hand. He raises the weapon, slowly lowers it, and lets it hover there, right above Terry's heart. Then, 
He turns around, gets into his truck, and drives away. Terry is frozen. It's too dark to see and adrenaline has numbed her pain, but she knows she must be badly injured. She can't believe she's even alive. And then she hears Anya moaning in pain. That sound, the sound of her friend dying, ignites a fire in Terry. She feels nothing except the desperation to save Anya. After being pinned under a truck and attacked with an axe, Terry stands up, goes to Anya, and touches her friend's head. She feels blood, broken bone, a soft piece of Anya's brain. Terry rushes back into their tent. She finds her contact lenses, puts them in, and grabs a flashlight. She starts running, looking for anyone who can help them. She makes her way to the park's main road, and she sees headlights driving toward her. She's struck by two possibilities. It could be help, or it could be the cowboy coming back to finish what he started. Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi, listeners. It's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from ParCast, Unexplained Mysteries. With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part doomsday special you do not want to miss. Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise, from a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing. Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify. Terry Gents stands on the edge of the road in Klein Falls State Park. She doesn't know it yet, but her right arm and ribs are broken. Her collarbone is fractured. Her right lung has collapsed. As she stumbles into the street, she looks like a specter. A young woman, beaten nearly to death, coated in a crimson layer of blood. She's lit by the headlights of a truck moving slowly up the road. The vehicle stops beside her. The window rolls down. And Terry sees two wide-eyed teenagers. Their names are Bill Penhollow and Darlene Gervais, and they jump to her aid. Terry leads them to Anya, who's lying on the ground, moaning in pain. Darlene and Bill lift her into their truck. They pack their equipment, their tent, bikes, sleeping bags, everything. They all pile into the truck and rush to the nearest hospital. The Redmond emergency room is small, and Terry and Anya's injuries are severe. Nurses give both women blood transfusions then arrange for them to be taken to a more advanced hospital by ambulance. Before long, 
Terry and Anya arrive at St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. One thing is immediately clear to doctors. Terry's bones are broken, one lung is crushed, and she's lost a lot of blood. She needs reconstructive surgery and a few days on a breathing machine, but she's going to live. They're not so sure about Anya. Most of Anya's injuries are to her skull. The bone is broken and her brain is severely damaged. She undergoes hours of surgery. When all is said and done, Anya wakes up. She lives, but she can't see, and she can't remember anything that happened in Klein Falls. Fast forward 10 days. Anya's vision has returned slightly, but she's left with permanent blind spots that make it impossible to drive and difficult to read and write. She has no recollection of the cowboy's attack and doesn't want to know anything about it. She considers her amnesia a gift. As for Terry, she remembers everything. The feeling of the tire across her chest, the seven thuds as the cowboy attacked her friend, Anya moaning in pain. Terry tells the police all of it, but at least for the moment, she's hardly thinking about catching the cowboy or learning who he is. Her focus is 100% on Anya's recovery and their relationship. It's easy to think a traumatic event like this would bring the young women closer. They faced evil together. They survived together. In Terry's mind, the experience has tied them to one another in an almost spiritual way. But Anya doesn't feel the same. Maybe because she had reservations about the trip and she didn't want to camp at Klein Falls in the first place. Whatever the reason, the rift that grew between them on their journey widens. When Anya is discharged from the hospital, she gives Terry an awkward, forced goodbye. Terry spends two more days recovering before she's discharged too. Over the following months, Terry and Anya mostly heal separately. Whenever they cross paths, Terry tries to talk about that night in Klein Falls. But Anya is adamant. She doesn't want to hear it. And this hurts for Terry. She feels like she doesn't have anyone to confide in. Anyone who understands what she went through. And she's still processing the attack. She knows the police are conducting an investigation into the attack, but she doesn't think about it often. Eventually, she hears that the investigation has petered out. They never found the cowboy who attacked her, but she's not upset. Mostly because she doesn't think about him as the man at all. In her mind, he's more like a mythical monster, an embodiment of evil, unable to be caught or punished. Terry and Anya are each left with permanent reminders of that night. Anya's blind spots never go away, and she has a metal plate implanted in her skull. Terry has scars all over her body. Her chest is permanently misshapen from where the truck crushed it. They eventually return to Yale, but don't reconnect. 
After graduation, they keep growing further and further apart. Anya becomes a doctor. She's able to practice, although her blind spots keep her from doing fine work like suturing wounds. She gets married and has three children. Meanwhile, Terry moves to New York City. As the years pass, the axe attack becomes like a scene in a movie. She remembers it vividly, but she can't really believe it happened to her. Still, her trauma manifests in obvious ways. She has violent, recurring nightmares and obsesses over every possible danger she can think of. She vacillates between moments of total numbness and all-consuming anxiety. Until 1990, when she's 33 years old. Terry packs up her Brooklyn apartment, preparing for a cross-country move to Los Angeles to pursue screenwriting. While digging through her things, she finds her stash of camping gear. She still has the old bicycle she rode along the Oregon coast. She even kept the blood-stained sleeping bag. For years, hanging onto these mementos gave her a sense of comfort, a reminder that she lived through that. But now, something's different. This moment signals a shift in Terry's mindset. Up until this point, she's been almost totally uninterested in finding the man who attacked her and Anya. But after moving to LA, she has a sudden realization. In her book, Strange Piece of Paradise, Terry says, quote, For many years, I had disguised my avoidance and denial behind spiritually vacuous notions that I was vibrating on a higher plane because I was not angry at my attacker. But now, Terry understands. She's beyond angry. She has 15 years of pain and fury built up inside her, and she has to do something with it. She has to figure out who did this to her. She starts by calling the Deschutes County District Attorney's Office and requesting their records about the attack and investigation. The woman on the other end tells her, all the files have been purged. It's been 15 years. At the time, the statute of limitations on attempted murder in Oregon is just three years which means there's no way to prosecute the case. In law enforcement's eyes, there's no reason to keep investigating and no reason to preserve the files. But for Terry, the news is devastating. Her rage comes bubbling up again. If the cowboy had killed her, well, there wouldn't be any statute of limitations. It almost feels like she's being punished for living. Terry says as much to the woman on the phone she gets transferred to another employee who says they'll look harder for information. The next day, Terry gets a call back. It appears the first woman was mistaken. They found the files, and Terry can come pick them up whenever she likes. Terry drives 17 hours from Los Angeles to Salem, Oregon. It's the first time she's been back in the state since the attack. While most people would find Oregon's lush landscape and tall pine trees beautiful, they set Terry on edge. She swallows her anxiety and goes to the Oregon State Police Department of Records. 
The office is cold and quiet. Terry introduces herself to the woman behind the desk. The receptionist hands her the case records. It's a thin file. There's a sparse description of the crime, written in clinical police language. Terry learns that shortly after the attack, police went to the crime scene and found tire tracks on the ground. They also interviewed witnesses who were in Klein Falls State Park that evening. Five separate witnesses described seeing someone who vaguely matched Terry's memory of her attacker. A white man in a plaid, button-up shirt and blue jeans, probably somewhere between 5 foot 9 inches or 6 feet tall, and physically fit. He drove a Chevy or Ford pickup truck. As far as Terry can tell, it doesn't seem like authorities looked very far into these leads. She also learns police received tips about two different men who had attacked women in the same area around the same time, but officers didn't investigate either one of them as potential suspects. Later on, Terry writes, quote, I was getting the sinking feeling that the inquiry into the attempted double murder of two girls had never been a matter of gravity for the investigating agency. But that's the central issue. There wasn't just one investigating agency. Terry also learns that because Klein Falls is a state park, the case was technically under the jurisdiction of the Oregon State Police. But somehow it got split between local authorities, the Redmond PD and the Deschutes County Sheriff's Department, and state officials. When one agency found a potential lead, they didn't always notify the others. So the whole investigation was unorganized from the beginning, which is extremely frustrating for Terry. She keeps coming back to the sheriff's office, but they don't have anything else to offer. Some people even tell her it's no use. What's the point of dredging up all these terrible memories when the case can't be prosecuted? Unsatisfied with the sheriff's department, Terry goes to the local library. She has the librarian sift through the archives and pulls out copies of contemporary news articles about the attack. She notices many have a similar theme. They talk about young women choosing to travel alone. They emphasize that Terry and Anya were attacked in an area where they technically shouldn't have been camping. It's like they're blaming the women for what happened to them. It's infuriating. But it's not the most interesting thing Terry finds. There's an anonymous editorial from a local paper called the Ben Bulletin. It's titled, Someone Knows, and it opens by saying, quote, Someone in this part of the state either knows or has a strong and probably correct suspicion of the name of the young man who attacked two Yale students at Klein Falls State Park. Whoever wrote it clearly believes the attacker is a local man and that his guilt is something of an open secret. This gets Terry's wheels spinning. She realizes she might be barking up the wrong tree at the sheriff's department. The police didn't solve the case back in 1977, and she doesn't think they're going to do it now, especially considering it's far past the statute of limitations. But Terry doesn't care about getting legal justice. She cares about finding the truth. 
And if that means sidling up to the locals and investigating a 15-year-old case on her own, well, that's exactly what she's going to do. For Terry Gents, getting information from people in Central Oregon is more difficult than it might sound. She introduces herself to locals as one of the women who got axed in Klein Falls. She's met with looks of horror, then sympathy, then recognition. Although almost everyone remembers hearing about the axe attack, most are hesitant to talk about who did it. It's old history and they don't want to go digging up ghosts from the past. But that's exactly what Terry's here to do. Over the next two years, she travels from L.A. to Oregon every few months, chasing down leads. She hits a lot of dead ends along the way, but there are also breakthroughs. One random person connects her to another. Through a long game of telephone, Terry finally gets close to one of the people she's been itching to talk to. She gets the phone number of Bill Penhollow's mother. He was just a teenager on the night he drove Terry and Anya to the hospital. Now he's in his 30s, but according to his mom, he has no interest in talking. She says he still lives at home in Redmond and is also plagued by nightmares. He's haunted by the image of Terry emerging from the woods, dripping with blood. But Terry's determined to talk to him. In 1994, she goes to Bill's parents' house. He's gone on a work trip, so instead of seeing him, she meets his girlfriend, Lorene. Lorene is in her early 30s, with big blonde hair and a huge cowboy belt buckle. She grew up in Redmond, Oregon, and has lived in the area her entire life. She and Terry... The Yale graduate who'd spent her adult life living in New York City and Los Angeles look like polar opposites. But once they get to talking, they click. That same day, Lorene gives Terry the information she's been looking for. Apparently, there were a lot of rumors around town after the axe attack. Most of them pointed to one person. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. It's one Lorene tells Terry vaguely. Then Terry pieces together more details as she interviews people around town. According to those rumors, these events took place on Thursday, June 23rd, 1977, the morning immediately after the Klein Falls axe attack. That morning, so the story goes, a boy drove a pickup truck down the country roads of Redmond, Oregon. He was only 17, and it was the middle of the day, but he was already drunk. His truck swerved as he made his way towards the local seed fields. For country kids, it was a hangout spot. There was a lot of land, a pond, and enough privacy to get into trouble. When the boy drove up, He saw his friends and some local kids already gathered in the field. He threw his truck into park and stumbled out. That's when he noticed his girlfriend standing nearby. We'll call her Jessie. They'd been together for a while, and she'd seen this kind of behavior from him before. She could tell he wasn't just drunk, he was also high on Valium. 
Jesse looked in the back of his truck. There was a half-empty handle of vodka. She poured the rest out on the ground and replaced it with water. When her boyfriend noticed his vodka was gone, his eyes turned to ice. He grabbed Jesse and pinned her to the ground, then kicked her in the head over and over. Finally, he followed her into the pond and held her face beneath the surface. His friends didn't try to stop him, but two younger girls did. They were only 13 or 14, but they came after the 17-year-old with sticks and stones. They managed to slow him down. Then the seed field boss showed up, and the boy let his girlfriend go. She swam out of the pond, struggling for air. She was so badly injured, she had to get medical attention. Later that day, the Redmond police took the boy into custody. He was detained for the weekend, but never actually charged for the assault. Instead, his parents paid his girlfriend's medical bills, and the whole thing was swept under the rug. Who was this boy? For privacy, we'll call him Mike Ross. And Loreen is adamant. After the Klein Falls axe attack, rumors swirled that Mike Ross was the cowboy that attacked Terry and Anya. He grew up in the area and has a long record of drug use, fighting, and abusing women and girls. At first, Terry thinks this can't be right. Mike sounds scary, but he was also only 17. Her attacker seemed like a grown man, but according to Loreen, Mike Ross looked older than his age. He grew up working on a farm. Even as a teenager, he was broad and strong. He also matches the witnesses' descriptions of the man they saw. White, physically fit, and a little taller than average. And one thing about Mike really strikes a chord. Lorene says he was known to be extremely neat. He always had his cowboy shirts tucked meticulously into his jeans. His clothes never had a wrinkle on them. That's one detail that always stuck out to Terry. Her attacker was dressed impeccably. It's the best lead Terry has, so she chases it. Between 1994 and 1995, she keeps in touch with Lorene. Slowly but surely, she expands her network, gains people's trust, and collects more information about Mike Ross. One of Mike's ex-girlfriends would later recall to ABC News her memories of him. He could turn from this really nice, yes ma'am, thank you ma'am, to Satan in his eyes, she said. I mean, it was just like two different people, night and day. Even some of Mike's friends admitted they thought he was cruel and were afraid of him. One friend claimed in an interview that Mike told him he couldn't remember details of the night of the axe attack. While Mike has always denied involvement in the crime, almost everyone acknowledges that within the small town, people believe he was guilty. They even gave him a nickname, the Hatchet Man. Beyond rumors and a history of violence, some people claim there was more concrete evidence of Mike's guilt. Lorene says a week after the axe attack, 
someone saw him with blood on the tailgate of his pickup. Numerous locals tell Terry he often carried a small axe in his truck, but that it mysteriously disappeared after the attack. But what really convinces Terry is a conversation with Jesse, the woman Mike nearly drowned on the morning after the attack. Terry's able to track her down with the help of Lorene and a handful of other locals. When they finally meet up, Jesse's an open book. She says when she took the vodka out of Mike's car, she noticed his toolbox was gone. This stuck out to her. He was a farm boy and he always had his tools with him. As soon as she heard about the assault at Klein Falls, she thought maybe Mike used his tools as weapons, then dumped them somewhere. Driven by this hunch, Jesse went to the scene of the crime on Friday, June 24, 1977, two days after the attack. She noticed the tire track still imprinted in the dirt. She knew immediately. They belonged to Mike. It's not always easy to differentiate tire tracks, especially if police don't have specific samples to compare. But according to Jesse, Mike's tires were obvious. They didn't match, so they left asymmetrical tracks that were easy for her to identify. But all this leaves Terry with one question. Why did he do it? If Mike Ross did try to kill her and Anya, what could have possibly motivated him? She comes up with two possible answers. First, maybe the newspapers were right. Maybe Mike saw two young women camping alone in a place they shouldn't have been and was so angered by it that he attacked. Or second, while Jesse says she and Mike were getting along fine on the night of the assault, some people claim they actually got into a huge fight. He might have left their argument furious and intoxicated, driven to Klein Falls, and taken out his anger on two random women. Now, you might be wondering, with all the suspicion around one person, the police must have looked into him, right? Not exactly. As far as Terry can tell from the sheriff's records, the Chutes County authorities didn't question Mike about the axe attack. The state police, who are technically in charge of the investigation, have never even heard his name. The only people who do know him are officers at the Redmond PD, the smallest local department. One Redmond resident claims to have heard local police say they knew who was guilty but couldn't prove it. A former Redmond PD corporal named Richard Little reportedly tells two people the whole department suspected Mike Ross. All that Terry can figure is that somehow this information didn't get passed up to the state police. But now she has the clues. She's almost certain Mike is the person who tried to murder her and Anya. And she wants justice. In May 1995, Terry goes to the Oregon State Police headquarters. She tells them everything she knows about Mike Ross. At first, they're not enthused. They remind her the statute of limitations expired in 1980. But Terry makes a strong argument. She believes that in the years since the axe attack, 
Mike Ross has threatened, abused, and intimidated countless women. This isn't only about finding answers for herself and Anya. It's about stopping a dangerous man from hurting more people. Ultimately, the state police agree to follow up on Terry's new discoveries. In July of 1995, they track Mike Ross down. He's living in Washington State with his wife and two children. He's in his mid-30s, but he looks older, with long, graying hair pulled back into a ponytail and a face suntanned by years of farm and construction work. Officers tell Mike they'd like to talk to him about the Klein Falls axe attack. He's calm and collected. He agrees to take a polygraph exam. When he sits for the test, Mike tells the examiner he's innocent, and the results seem to confirm that. Now, it's important to know lie detectors don't actually measure lies. They measure stress levels. The idea is when someone is lying, they'll show an increase in heart rate, perspiration, and other signs of distress. In Mike's case, he didn't seem anxious. But then, police learn Mike ingested alcohol and muscle relaxers before the exam, which means his stress levels could have been artificially numbed by drugs. The results are deemed inconclusive. Mike sits for a second polygraph. Again, he says he's innocent. But this time, three different experts score his response as deceptive. When the police tell him they know he's lying, he breaks down in tears. He says not a single day goes by that he doesn't think about the axe attack at Klein Falls and the two young women who almost died there. It's not a confession. He never says he saw the women or that he was present during the attack, though it's definitely suspicious. But this time, officers learn Mike used methamphetamines before the exam. They can't rely on test results if he isn't sober. At this point, some state police officers start to believe Terry's onto something. One official says, quote, Behaviorally, I'm convinced he did it. Unfortunately, I don't have any concrete proof. They keep trying to catch him in a lie. He sits for another polygraph in June 1996, but he gets so belligerent that officials are never even able to administer the test. It's clear to law enforcement that Mike Ross is hiding something. But yet again, there's a sense that all this effort won't lead to justice. Even if Mike openly confessed to the attack, he can't be arrested for it due to the statute of limitations. It's too late. But then, in the fall of 1996, Terry gets a call. Mike has been taken into custody for pointing a gun at one of his hunting partners and forcing him to drive around in the wilderness. He's charged with second-degree kidnapping, unlawful use of a firearm, and coercion. Terry's heart races. Here's a chance to put Mike Ross behind bars. Not for attacking her and Anya, but for yet another incident of violence and intimidation. The following year, Terry attends his grand jury hearing. She sits behind him in the courtroom. 
She's around 40 now, and he's about 37. There's no grand moment of recognition. In her memory, Terry sees her attacker as a cowboy with his face hidden by shadows. But while she can't recall his jawline, his hair, or his eyes, she wonders, does he remember hers? At one point, Mike turns around. He stares straight at Terry, and his blue eyes go ice cold. She can't tell if he recognizes her, but she refuses to break eye contact. She stares back until finally he turns around. At the end of the trial, Mike is found guilty on two counts, unlawful use of a firearm and coercion. He's given five years in prison, followed by two years of legal supervision. It might not seem like much, but for Terry, this is a huge moment. This is Mike Ross's very first felony conviction. In Terry's eyes, any amount of time behind bars is better than none. While Mike maintains his innocence and has since declined to speak to media outlets about the case, Terry goes public with her accusations against him in 1997. She holds three separate press conferences where she says she believes he's the man who tried to kill her and Anya in Kleinfall State Park. That same year, Terry is part of a successful campaign to get the statute of limitations on attempted murder extended. Today, there's no time limit for prosecuting a homicide attempt in Oregon. It's a bittersweet win. The new law isn't retroactive, meaning it doesn't apply to previous cases. It's still impossible to prosecute anyone for the attack at Klein Falls. It's impossible for Terry to get real justice. The best she can do is share her story. In 2006, she publishes a book called Strange Peace of Paradise that recounts the attack and her search for answers. In it, she also refers to Mike Ross by a pseudonym, saying she wants to avoid giving him any more attention. The work is embraced by the community in both Redmond and Bend, Oregon. Many people were haunted by the case and are grateful Terry has put the matter to rest in the best way she could. But there are still sore spots. Anya never comes to any of Terry's signings. She still doesn't want to know anything about Klein Falls and doesn't seem interested in ever reconnecting with Terry. Their relationship hasn't recovered, and Terry doesn't hold any illusions that it will. The rift between them is a wound that can't be stitched back together. And for all the healing that Terry has done, she still has nightmares. She still has scars. Her chest is still misshapen, a constant reminder of the crushing weight of a cowboy's pickup truck. She believes in Klein Falls. She came face to face with true evil. That's something she can never forget. In a 2011 interview with PBS, Terry remembers her attacker by saying, quote, Could I ever, under any circumstances, forgive this man? I wonder if life is long enough to atone for the crimes that he has done. In this case, I would say no. A single lifetime, the years he has left on the planet, 
would not be enough. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the Klein Falls axe attack, amongst the many sources we used, we found Strange Piece of Paradise by Terry Gents, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boisreau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Karis Allen, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. An alien invasion, nuclear warfare, the second coming, How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part doomsday special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise. We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify.